to the book of Titus. We're going to go back to chapter 2. And I want to talk about something that's going to lead us into uh, invitation prayer time, okay? And we're going to talk just about the old-fashioned concept of grace and the grace of God. And I'm thinking about that old hymn, Amazing Grace. And it says in that hymn, How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And that thought about the appearance of grace, it comes out of this particular part of Titus. If you'll go down to verse 11, Titus chapter 2. And it's almost like the dew. You know, in the summertime, that stuff that even when it doesn't rain, it keeps you from mowing your grass maybe as early in the morning as you'd like. Have to wait for it to dry up. The dew just seems to appear. It just shows up. And in the same way, how many people have you seen that had no evidence, no evidence whatsoever that the Holy Spirit was working in their life, and all of a sudden, grace appears and they get saved. You know anybody today that's saved? That if you had thought about them before salvation, you would have said, not them. Not them at all. And then all of a sudden, grace showed up. Grace appeared. And there they are, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord repenting of their sin and surrendering to Him. And guess what happens? They become a new creature in Christ. The course of their life is changed. The Spirit of God indwells them. And you look at them now and you can't even begin to imagine what in the world happened. It was because of the appearance of grace. But let me also ask you to do something. Take a good look in the spiritual mirror of the Word of God. And understand that you too were that unlikely person. There was nothing good in you. There was nothing that deserved or merited the grace of God. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, you didn't even understand that you needed grace and you didn't even seek after God. Think about that. The Bible says, quoting the Psalms, so it's in the Old and the New Testament, that all of us had become unprofitable. You know, you might have a car that's an old beater, and uh, it breaks down on you, and you look and you say, boy, it's nothing but good for the salvage yard. And the salvage yard maybe give you $150, $200, $500 for that car. And you walk away and say, well, at least I got something out of it. Can I just tell you, before you were saved, there was nothing even salvageable about your life. Nothing good, nothing good at all. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And the Lord drew you to him he sought and found you. You know, people say, I found the Lord. Well, the Lord wasn't lost. Am I right? The Lord wasn't lost. You were. It's the shepherd who goes after the sheep. And you think about what God did in your life. And I want you to think this morning about what God saved you from. Where were you headed? 
Some of you were headed to jail. Some of you were headed toward a life of crime. Some of you were headed toward more broken relationships, more hurt. Some of you were headed toward a life of addiction. Some of you were headed toward a life of perversion, sexual perversion. Some of you were headed toward a life of cold, dead religion. Some of you were headed toward a life of nothingness. Think about all of the things God saved you from. But God didn't just save you from something. He saved you unto something. And Paul is going to talk to Titus now after he's talked about the roles of older people and younger people and older men and younger men in the church and even our work life. He goes into this particular section and he says in verse 11, Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, like the dew, just appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Hit the pause button right there before you go down to verse 13. Is this present age characterized at all by sobriety, righteousness, and godliness? Yes or no? No. This tells us that grace is enabling us to go upstream against the flow. And that's exactly what the call is. Because you're going to find this idea of being sober more and more difficult to do. More and more unlikely as time goes by. Any number of ways to be affected by that, right? Righteously. Think about all of the things that are coming on like a flood that scare you to death sometimes for your children and your grandchildren. You can probably handle a lot of it. But what about your little kids who don't know any better? This past uh, month or so, there was a Sprite commercial in Argentina that shows parents helping their children change from male to female or female to male. It's a Sprite commercial. Sprite is part of the Coca-Cola company headquartered in the Bible Belt, Atlanta, Georgia. Those commercials are being marketed in foreign countries where they're more liberal because they're on their way here. They're not here yet, but it's coming. It's hard to find righteousness, isn't it? And look at the last thing it said, and godly. It's not enough just to do the right thing. Just to be right in your positions, in your political thinking, in your economic thinking, or in your moral thinking. You've got to be godly, and you cannot be godly without the presence of God in your life. It's not just a code of ethics. It's God living in you and living through you and changing you by grace. Boy, 
the reason I stopped there is because that's a tall order. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. And then it says that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Not in an age we wish would happen. Not in a someday thing. Not if a certain person is president. Or if certain people are elected to Congress. Or in a certain society where you don't have some of these things. But in what age? This present age. No excuses. Well, it's hard to live. Yeah, it is. But this is where we can live. We can't live in another age. This is the age we have to live in. So let's pick up in verse 13. How am I going to do that? Well, if all I do is focus on all the evil, all the wrongs, all the problems, all the hypocrites, all of the junk that's going on, I'm going to just cave. Here's what we do. We just sang about it. We just sang about it. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. Who gave himself for us. And here's a purpose. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And then he tells the pastor, speak these things, don't shy away from them, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. That means overlook or take for granted what the preacher is saying, Titus. You preach as a spokesman for Almighty God. And congregation, listen to that. Don't be a casual observer. Listen. These are action, action-oriented verses. Now, if every believer did these things, could we make a visible, positive impact in our families, hmm? in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our city, state, nation, and world. I mean, I know when we think about things, we are few when you compare us to a world population. But when you start counting how many people say that I have been born again by the grace of God. It's a lot of us. And yet we shrink away like pansies in the July sun. And we wonder why we're not really having an impact because we fail to bloom where we're planted. We reminisce about times gone by. But we don't live in those times. They're good memories. And they ought to be building our faith, not shutting it down. We were made for now. We were created for now. We were planted here for now. I don't care what your age is. You're a now person. You are to live in this generation soberly, righteously, and godly. And we want to help you do that. That's why we preach 
That's why we pray. That's why we gather. Because we don't do this naturally. We don't do this on our own. We're being pulled in so many different directions. Our minds are being polluted. Ron Carlson talked about being in India. He said he was with a cab driver who was a Muslim. And he said they came to a river and there was a mother with her children bathing in the river. And he said, and he looked upstream, and there were two or three men that were going to the bathroom in that river upstream. How would you like to bathe your children in that? And he said to the cab driver who was Muslim, don't they know that that's dirty, that that's toxic, that that could make their children sick and the cab driver said inshallah if God wills no compassion no concern nothing whatsoever very fatalistic very stoic if God wills if God wills it's none of my concern is another way of saying that when I look at these verses I look at a set of verses that tell us that when the grace of God appears to people like us, that it changes us and it also goes to work in a society in a positive way. Even though we know that God is sovereign, we don't become these passive, fatalistic people. We look around and we see like the good Samaritan that we studied in Sunday school. What can I do? How can I help? I can't take on every cause. You can't take on every cause. I told my Sunday school class that my dad would give to a lot of different organizations. Charitable, political, all those kind of things. And they would always send him mail because they want more donations. And you know what they also do? They sell your name to other organizations. You know that? And I mean every day. We'd go get his mail out of his mailbox. And I mean he had a big oversized mailbox. And I found out why. Because he would get sometimes like a Walmart sack full of mail every single day. And when he passed so we could take care of his business, I had his mail forwarded to our house. I look at all of those things and I'm thinking if I had a thousand dollars to give to each one of those things I'd be bankrupt and it probably wouldn't change much of anything. Organizations and causes and everything they come and go and Jesus made this statement the poor you will always have with you. It's kind of the unfinished task isn't it? We can't help everybody. We can't do everything. But I think these verses call us to say, by the grace of God, what can I do? You've heard the famous story about the little boy that saw a bunch of starfish that were washed up on the beach. And he went out and he picked up one and he threw it into the water and somebody laughed and said, Hey kid, you'll never be able to get all of those starfish. You can't make a difference for them. And he said, I did for that one. And what I think grace does is it puts us in a particular age, a particular time. We were made kind of like Mordecai said to Esther, for such a time as this. And I can't right all of the wrongs. I can't fix everything. 
But I can do something, and you can do something, and we can do it for that one. And when everybody has a one that they work with, a one that they help, it may be somebody that you're witnessing to. It would be my desire as your pastor that everybody that is here this morning would have a one that they're witnessing to, that they're praying for, that they're building a relationship with. I went to the annual meeting of the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma, and the president, Blake Gideon, preached a message on Jesus turning the water into wine, but he focused on one thing. He said that when the wine ran out, Jesus was already there. They didn't go looking for Jesus. They didn't have to bring him in somewhere else. Jesus was already there. And when he took the, uh, gave the instruction to fill the pots with water, and then the water was turned to wine, and the governor of the feast said, this is the best. Usually you serve the best first and then the worst later, but you've saved the best for last. And he went on to say this. Everybody that you're around... No matter how good a time they think they're having right now, and they don't want your Jesus, they don't even want you. You're a stick in the mud. He said, just keep in mind, the wine is going to run out. And who will be there when their wine runs out? And he told the story about being at a gym, being with a guy that he said, I didn't particularly like him, I wasn't particularly drawn to him, but I felt impressed I was supposed to be around him. And he said, and here I am as a pastor listening to him and his language and some of the things he would joke about and talk about with other people. And he said, and the Spirit of God said, hang in there. And he said, and I'd work out with him. He said, we built a relationship. I gave him my phone number. He would text me every once in a while. His marriage started going sour. His business started to fail. And he said, and we would meet for coffee because he didn't know who else to turn to. And we would talk and I would pray with him and I would encourage him. He said, I was there when his wine ran out. And Jesus was the only answer when the wine runs out. He said, that man has been saved and baptized. His marriage is reconciled. His wife has been baptized. And they both now for several years have been serving in his church. He said, where are you going to be when somebody's wine runs out? He said, I want to be in their corner. And I want to present to them Jesus. That when everything else fails... Here's someone, here's someone who can save your soul, redeem your life, take you to heaven, pay for your sin debt, give you his spirit, and give promises to you that will never run out. And he challenged us as Oklahoma Baptists to get involved in the lives of people. Get involved in the lives of people even when they think they don't need you so that when all the fun ends... When everything goes sour, when things begin to fall apart, there is a Christian in their corner ready to help and ready to present Jesus, the only one, the only one who can restore joy into a fallen, broken life. This is what these verses here are saying. Titus is not instructed. Gather a bunch of people in the four walls of a church and make sure they never touch anything contaminated. Hey folks, if you want to talk about paganism, if you want to talk about destruction, if you want to talk about evil, it's everything in our world. It's a cursed and fallen world. You'll never be able to be completely separate from everything else. 
In fact, Paul told the Corinthians, you misunderstood me. This is my paraphrase. When I told you not to associate with the immoral of this world, I meant in the church, brothers and sisters that claim to be right with God and are living an ungodly life. They're supposed to be disciplined. He said, but I didn't mean the people of this world, for then you would have to come out of the world. He said, I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. In other words, you've got to be there when the wine runs out. You've got to be there when the fun time is over. You've got to be there because that's when they'll listen and that's when they'll hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that in these verses? Because the Bible tells us here that the way we are supposed to live, it's not really, not really about us. We read the Bible, what's in this for me? What do I get out of this? Well, in these verses, when I read them, it says that we are being separated and we are being called out and we are being redeemed, not so much for ourselves, but for Him, for His glory. We sang earlier, glorify thy name in all the earth. Well, can I just tell you that Paul said in Romans chapter 10, how are they going to believe in someone of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone is sent to proclaim it? Don't let the word preach throw you. It's not sermons that they need. It's people like you and me going out into the world and everywhere we go. We're running across people who need Jesus. And we are giving a witness, a message, a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to scatter we're supposed to take the grace that has impacted our life so that it can appear in someone else's life and that appearance may be through you as it just shows up and as it makes a difference. I think about modern thoughts about grace. Have you ever heard any of these? Some people kind of give the idea that, well, grace just means I'm okay. Just the way I am, I'm okay. You know, no need for any change. I'm under grace. Quit being legalistic. Quit trying to make me into something better. I'm okay the way that I am. Some people say that when you look at grace, that grace only looks back. It's just about Jesus, just about the cross. There's nothing present tense. There's nothing future. It's just all about that. And I agree, we do look back to the cross. But is that all we look at in grace? Some people think that grace is just a uh, casual, thoughtless, kind of a self-focused thing. Have you noticed how many times you'll be watching TV and there'll be something happening, uh, maybe a funeral for a, for a policeman or a fallen soldier or something like that, and you'll see the flag and uh, all of that and the weeping people there and your heart goes out to them and then you hear the bagpipes in the background. You ever heard that? And what do the bagpipes almost always play at those funerals? Amazing grace. Have you ever had the thought, oh, if only those people knew what grace really is? But to them, it's just one of those things that just, you know, it's there. It's not that big a deal, casual, thoughtless, doesn't have any real application to anything. Just, oh, oh, we're in a tragedy. Play Amazing Grace. Do something like that. Talk a little bit about grace. But don't really try to understand it or do anything like that. And some people kind of have the idea that grace is passive. 
You know, it just kind of shows up and, you know, maybe it does something, maybe it doesn't. We don't really think that much about it. We don't really care that much about it. But I want to kind of challenge those things and say this. If you really understand grace, God's unmerited or undeserved or unearned favor. God has every reason to turn his back on you and just let everything fall as it might. And you just live, you muddle through, and then you go to hell for an eternity. And God would have every right to do that had he so chosen because we are sinners and the wages of sin is death. What if God had done that, but he didn't? You see, grace means that we're not okay. The very fact that you would ever say, Oh God, be gracious to me as a sinner is your confession that I'm not okay, that I am messed up, that I need help, that I cannot provide for myself. I need the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ to come into my life because I'm a sinner who deserves hell. Grace means you are not okay. That's why it's grace. Some people, when they think about grace like that, they say that that's offensive, it's judgmental. I didn't make up the rules here, and I didn't say that. That was, that was Jesus who says that. When we think about grace and people say, well, grace only looks back, but yet when I read the Bible, I read things like this. Paul said, the God who has delivered us, who shall deliver us, and who is delivering us even now? Did you know salvation has three tenses to it? There's the past tense where God rescued you out of that, declared you not guilty, and that took place in a moment's time. But now he is saving you from the very power of sin. That's why he's setting you free from sin, setting you free from things that would control you, setting you free and changing you, and that's called sanctification. And one day when you... Uh, when the Lord comes back, I uh, sometimes hear people say all the time that, you know, well, Grandpa passed away and now he's got his new body. Not yet, not yet. That only happens at the rapture. And at the rapture, we're all going to have our bodies changed and receive a glorified body. So, not yet, but one of these days, future, there's glorification when we will be saved, taken out of this place, and will be taken into heaven in the presence of the Lord forever and ever and ever. So grace, yes, it looks back to the cross of Jesus, but it also looks right now. Where's the fruit in my life? Where's the progress in my life? Where do I stand with God today in my life? Because you see, there are some people that you talk to. Do you know for sure if you died today, you'd go to heaven? Oh, yes, I know. Well, how do you know that? And they'll take you back to a time that was a long time ago when they were a kid, when they were a teenager, when they were at a camp. Oh, I prayed the prayer. I prayed the prayer. Or I walked the aisle. I've had people testify like that. Aisles don't save you. Prayers don't save you, do they? Only Jesus Christ can save you, and it's his finished work on the cross that saves you. You've got to trust in that. And I think that will result in a prayer as you cry out to God, but uh, there's no ritual we can put you through that, poof, you're going to be saved. So we, we, we look back, and some people look back, and they're trusting in something that's not real. They're trusting in something that has no present evidence in their life, no present effect upon their life. And it burdens my heart because I'm afraid that for a lot of those people, 
They're putting trust in something that is inadequate. And there's no fruit. There's no evidence in their life. And they are terrified. Because they're not ready for the future. And the coming of the Lord. You know, it's amazing. We can sing, And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Now, how many of you would say amen to that? Well, that was terrible. You guys listening? I'm asking you to talk back, please. How many of you would say amen to that? Yeah. Does it blow your mind that there are people... That that very thing I just talked about makes them go, oh no, I hope he doesn't come back today. I got some things I want to do. I got life I want to live. And for some people, they may, and I may be talking to you. You sit in church every week, but the truth of the matter is the thought of dying or the thought of the Lord's return terrifies you because you're not sure you'd be included in all of that. You see, grace doesn't just look back. It has a Sure, the cross and everything. I don't mean to minimize that at all. But it works today and it works in the present. And it works in the future as we are kept by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see where we're going with all of this? And yet grace gets thrown around and it gets sung about by people who have absolutely no idea of what it means. And they haven't experienced anything that has anything to do with what the Bible would call grace. Some people think it's just this casual, thoughtless thing. And yet, grace is always Christ-centered. It's an intentional thing. And it was very costly. Grace is free. But oh, my friend, don't ever get the idea that it was cheap. God sent His Son. And Jesus willingly came, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross a death that you and I cannot even imagine so much more than the physical sufferings, God the Father poured the judgment for our sins upon Jesus Christ and paid for them in full. That is, if you are a believer. That's the cost of grace, the price that had to be paid. That's what God did For those who would believe. Think about all of that. And think about all of the sin. He became sin who knew no sin. Right? That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Think about what he bore. Think about what he absorbed. Think about what that was like for him to be separated from his Father and from the Holy Spirit. So that he shrieked with a loud voice. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? And the abandonment of Christ as he bore the judgment of God in the place of those who would believe. It's not a casual, thoughtless thing. It was planned by God before the foundation of the world to be applied to those who would believe. And that is done so that we can have a right relationship with God. And it is done so that our lives can be godly, sober, and righteous in this present evil age. And so that we would be fit for heaven, made fit by His grace so that we can spend an eternity with Him. Grace, in other words, is not passive. It saves us, it assigns us, and it empowers us. That's what we're talking about. So let's go back to these verses. 
Look at verse 11 and 12. And you'll notice here that grace transforms. It doesn't leave you alone. It doesn't say, oh, you're okay, I'm okay, what's the big deal, don't worry about it. You notice here that these verses says that grace, it brings salvation. That's a transformation from lost to saved. And notice how it's a public thing. It appears, it doesn't, it's not applied to all men, but it appears to all men. It's a public gospel. And notice that it teaches not them, but it does teach us who have received that grace that we deny ungodliness and worldly lust, even though it pulls at us. And we're not perfect, and we stumble and we fall. But it's the direction of our life not to follow after all of that, but to go a separate way, a different way, so that we can live to where we are sober, and we are righteous, and we are godly in this present age. You see, God accepts you where you are, but he doesn't leave you that way. Jesus went to a tomb. And his friend Lazarus was in the tomb. It's been four days. Lazarus' own sisters are saying, Lord, you came too late. But the truth of the matter is he was right on time, wasn't he? And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And I love it when people say, if he hadn't said Lazarus, every dead person in the cemetery would have come out. It was a particular call, wasn't it? Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus out of the grave. How did he do that? The power of God. But isn't it interesting? They said that he was still bound, wrapped in those grave clothes. How did he walk? How did he get up off the slab? The Holy Spirit had to pull him out, didn't he? When God calls, you come. Oh. And here he comes. And then what was the interesting command of Jesus? Loose him. Unwrap him. Get him out of those stinking, nasty grave clothes. You know what I see in that? When you were saved, God called you and you came by his power. He redeemed you and he gave you new life. Now you know what discipleship or sanctification is? Taking off the grave clothes. The grave clothes of pornography. The grave clothes of perversion. The grave clothes of greed. The grave clothes of anger and a bad temper. The grave clothes of selfishness. The grave clothes of addiction. See, Jesus is the answer to all of that, and that's what discipleship is. When you get saved, it's a glorious thing, but you're not everything God wants you to be yet. And he's in the process of taking off the old, nasty, blood-soaked, smelly grave clothes so that every day that goes by, every week that goes by, every month that goes by, every year that goes by, you're more free than you were before, and you smell better than you did before, and you look more like Jesus than you did before, and you're walking on in freedom and in power because you're getting rid of the grave clothes that bind you up. That's salvation, and that's sanctification. So when we think about grace, it transforms us. Secondly, notice when you get down to verse 13, he talks about looking for. Grace looks ahead. There's a better day coming. 
You may be living in this present evil age and you may be muddling through and you're going to face persecution. You're going to disappoint yourself sometimes and other people are going to disappoint you. We've all been through that. But there's a better day coming, folks. There's a better day coming. I don't know when it's going to be, but there's a trumpet that's going to be blown. There's a shout that is going to be shouted and we are going to be taken out of this place living and dead. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and hallelujah thus shall we ever be with the Lord keep looking up and keep looking ahead this may be your last day I'm so tired and I'm so weary and I've been putting up with this for so long how can God expect anymore because this may be the day the trumpet sounds and you want to finish well This may be the day you hear the shout and you want to finish well. Hey, weary saint, keep on keeping on. Press on toward the mark of the high calling of Jesus Christ. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't lay everything aside. Don't compromise. Run the race with diligence. Run with endurance. Why? Because you're running it for him and he gave his all for you. And this may be the last day you have to run the race. Finish it. Finish it. Finish it. Finish it. Oh, I would hate for that day to come and hear the trumpet when I was lying in a bed with a woman that wasn't my wife. I'd hate for the trumpet to sound when I'm popping the top on something I shouldn't be drinking. I would hate for the trumpet to sound when I was ignoring the command of God and the call on my life and forsaking that, wouldn't you? Think about it. Grace causes us to look ahead. There's a better day coming. And we rest in the work of Christ for salvation. But we look forward to his coming. But number three, look, grace remembers. This is why we take the Lord's Supper from time to time. Because we need to remember. We need to remember where God found us. We need to remember our inability. And we need to remember a God who took the initiative, got involved in our life, drew us to him, and saved us by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He gave himself for us. But notice it's for a purpose. To redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. It's his sacrifice and his reason for the sacrifice. And the focus of all of that is Jesus. Isn't it amazing how quick we make it about us? How quick we make it about how we feel and how we are instead of realizing that all of that is, that's wrapped up in redemption is all for him, for him. You were created and you were saved and you were ordained to uh, uh, eternal life for his glory and for his purpose. But then we get down to this last part and we say this, grace works. Grace goes to work. Zealous, zealous, emphasize that word, zealous for what kind of works? Good works. Well, you can be busy and you can wear yourself out on things that don't matter. Things that waste your time. Things that distract you. And things that let you down. Read through Ecclesiastes. Solomon could tell you what that's like. And that was written for a warning. We are zealous for good works. Eternal works. The things that matter. 
It's not a selfish thing. It's not a robotic thing. It's not something that we just put in our time, get God off of our back, and go about the life we really want to live. Zealous for good works. You look for an opportunity to do good for the cause of Christ when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're in your neighborhood, when you're out walking, when you're driving down the highway. Whatever it is, you look for an opportunity to do good. How much good have you done lately? What difference have you made for somebody? How have you been a witness for Christ this past week? How have you alleviated somebody's suffering? How have you been used to help somebody else get the grave clothes off that they can't remove like Lazarus? See, Lazarus couldn't do it himself initially. He had to have some help. And that was the power of God that brought him out of the grave. But the disciples were told, go loose him. Ooh, I've got to touch that? I've got to get up that close? He needs a shower, Lord. Maybe after he gets all that off and showers up good, then I'll be ready to help him. No, the Lord said, get up there and get involved in his messy, stinky, dirty, smelly, rotten past and help him take the grave clothes off. Whose grave clothes have you helped to remove lately? Because the grace of God appears for you and for me to live a certain way by the transformative power of Christ And then to be involved in this present evil age so that we're there when the wine runs out. And we we present Jesus. And Jesus saves them. It's not the end. It's not the end. we got to take the grave clothes off. For the drug addict and the alcoholic, we got to take the grave clothes off. For the pervert, we got to take the grave clothes off. For the selfish, greedy, angry, hard-to-get-along-with person, we got to take the grave clothes off. And a sermon's not going to do it. One-on-one, hands-on, with compassionate hearts, filled with mercy, understanding the truth, there but for the grace of God, go I. See, we say that, but we don't always really get it. How depraved was I? I was at the bottom of the heap, folks. So were you. Total inability to do anything about my situation. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, has quickened us and raised us up to seat in heavenly, set in heavenly places in Christ Jesus For by grace you have been saved. And think about all of the people in your life that taught you, that ministered to you. Think about those who got involved in the dirty messiness and nastiness of your life to help you get rid of the grave clothes. Is there someone sitting around you in this church today that you sit there and you're glad they're here, but... Oh, I hope they don't sit too close to me. I hope they don't come over to my house. Oh, I'd rather come over here with the, with the class that's got the grave clothes off and the perfume. I don't want... Oh, mm, shoo, what is that? And you look at that and you're repelled and repulsed by it. And according to what I read today, whenever you get a whiff of the grave clothes, that's your calling. That's your calling. 
God lets you get a whiff of it because He wants you to run to it, not away from it. And there's somebody in your life, somebody, that the wine is getting ready to run out. Will you be there in their corner? There's somebody around you and somebody that you know. And boy, they're just not everything they ought to be for Jesus. You know what that is? What are you supposed to do? Help them get the grave clothes off. Not in anger. Not in disgust. But with the compassion of a nurse who comes in and cleans up a patient so that they can get well and go home. So what I want to ask you to do is we're going to have our Thanksgiving meal and Luke Johnson is going to be here and he does a great job for the last two years presenting the gospel. Who's going to come? Well, we hope we have a house full and we generally do. But those people come because somebody brings them. Somebody invites them. So I'm going to ask you, who's your one or two or three? Who are you going to bring? And I want you to bring somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Because you never know. That night may be the night that their wine runs out. And they need Jesus. Bring somebody who still smells like death. Why? Because we want to help them get the grave clothes off. They need to be in our church. They need to be with us. They need to be around you. And you need to get your hands dirty. They need to be in fellowship. So what I'm going to ask you to do is, will you come up here to this altar and will you pray for that one that you need to bring or that group that you need to bring and if you don't have anybody would you come and say oh Lord I want to be zealous for good works would you put somebody in my life this week that I can bring to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ I wonder how many of you would be willing to do that Willing to get your hands dirty. Willing to get involved in somebody else's life. Willing to be that one zealous for good works. Because it's changed your life. It's given you a new future. It's still working on you. Now to grow up is to say, Lord, it's no longer just about me. It's about you. And what you want me to do in someone else's life for your glory for your honor, and through your power, by your grace. So, I'm going to ask you, as we get ready for our time of invitation, first of all, I'm going to let our people who do our altar ministry, that go ahead and go on back to the back. You say, what are they going back there for? Because if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, they can tell you about it and show you from the Word of God how to be saved, how to be a Christian. If you've got questions about church membership, they can help you. If you just need somebody to pray with you, they can do that. And you can follow them back there. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. When you've come to the end of yourself and there's nowhere else to go, what are you going to do? Let me tell you, turn to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They would love, they would love to talk to you about that. But for the rest of us, and this is going to be most of us, Who are you going to bring?
Who are you going to get involved with? Do you even have anyone like that that's in your life? So let's all stand and let's come fill the altar. Brother Dale's going to start singing and you come. You come. This is one of the greatest times for evangelism that we ever see. Hundreds of people will be here. We want you to be here, but don't come alone. Don't come alone. You never know. It might be that Sunday night with Brother Luke that you look and you see grace appearing. Like the dew, it appears. Maybe your mom or your dad, your son or your daughter. Maybe a grandchild. Maybe a niece or a nephew. Maybe an aunt or an uncle. Maybe somebody who's high as a kite. It may be somebody who has tried religion in vain. It may be somebody. It may be somebody that you can't stand. It may be somebody that you dearly love. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And if you don't have anybody, ask the Lord to give you somebody. Hurting people all around us.